Yet not I, but through Christ in me. It's all about Jesus Christ. And uh, Brandon, what was the name of that second song we sang? All Sufficient Merit. Preached my sermon. We can pray and we can go eat. I listened to that song and I was like, wow, that is amazing. And what a great job that our music team does. As they select songs, they look for songs that are rich in theology. So we not only preach God's word, we sing God's word when we're together here as a church family. So welcome. I want to welcome our church family. It's good to be here. It's always good to be in the house of the Lord. Amen? Amen? Every time we come, whether it's on Sunday morning, whether it's Wednesday, the times that we get together um, are such an encouragement to me, and I hope they are to you. Um, anyone who knows when I come here and it's my turn to preach, how do I always start? I always start by reminding us and reminding myself that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. You know, we talk about that. You know, the order of that's very important. Instruction, reproof, correction, training. Um, think about this. So as, as we go through God's Word, as we're looking at God's Word, these are the questions you should be asking yourself. Instruction. How is God calling me to think differently? As we study God's Word, how is God calling me to think differently? Reproof. How is God reordering my heart's affections? How is God reordering my heart's affections? Correction. What is, calling, what is God calling me to do differently? Correction means a change. Once there's the reproof, there's the change. How is God calling me to be different? And then training. Am I a disciple? Do I enjoy this process? You know, I was just watching a football game last night, the Falcons, right? And I, just, I watched just a few minutes of it. But I was thinking about athletes. And all the training that's involved. And that's what we're talking about. We talk about instruction, reproof, correction. This is training in our life, in the Christian walk. And those athletes, that's what they do. That, whole, that same process is going on and on in, as they are perfecting what they do, their work, on the, grid, on, on the gridiron, right? And so we should take joy in this process. You know, sometimes we think of a community Bible church, we're a teaching church. But if it just stops with the instruction, it doesn't have the effect that God has designed for God's Word to have in our life. And so as we come and we look at God's Word, that's what we want change in our lives. And then, of course, I've always reminded um, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by His Spirit. 2 Peter chapter 1. It's not, what does it mean to me? It's what is God, the author, ultimate author of his word? What is he communicating to me? God's word is not, is not just whatever you want it to be. It's what he is communicating to us. And so as we approach God's word, we're dependent upon his Holy Spirit to enlighten us and help us understand um, what he has for us. So let's, go to, let's open up in a word of prayer. Can we ask God just to... Um, Give us that enlightenment and help us 
as we study his word together. Father, thank you for this morning, this day that you have given us. Ah, it's a beautiful morning. Just getting up and walking early this morning with Kim, with my wife. I just, just what a blessing that was. Your creation, even in its fallen state, just screams of your glory. And that's an amazing thing. And so you've revealed yourself in nature, but you most perfectly have revealed yourself through your Son, Jesus Christ, and through your Word. And so as we come to your Word, we pray that your Holy Spirit would work in our hearts and our minds so that we might come to understand you better and let that impact our lives. May we go out changed. And may all that is said and done be to the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, on the back, um, we have a handout. Um, Hopefully you've got that handout. Um, One of the suggestions from one of our members was that we put um, the text or some of the text that we're referring to on the back. Now, I'm reading from the ESV. Um, Some of you have NESV. There's different versions that you have. So we've kind of put some of the text. These are some of the texts we're going to be looking at. It's on the back if that helps. But let me encourage you. Please let me encourage you. Bring the Bible that you have at home, that you read. Bring that to church. I know you can get it on your phone. But parents, don't let your kids think that God's Word is in that. I don't know. That's my, that's my speaker, but I'm so used to wearing my phone. Is in that little box that has so many other things. Let them see you opening up God's Word. And you can do that. And we have those Bibles in front of you. But I just want to encourage you to bring um, your Bible. So, our text is in, we're in 1 John. So um, if you're visiting with us, we have a preach team. Um, We're going through different books of the Bible. My assignment is the epistle of 1 John. So turn in your Bibles to the epistle of 1 John. This is the, this will be the third message that I preached in 1 John. Um, The first two weeks that I preached, we went through um, chapter one. We're going to, we're going to begin now in chapter two. So um, if you've turned there to First um, John, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the first chapter because it's short. It helps build context. And our um, focus is going to be on the first two verses in chapter two. Now, like Matt said the other day, going through 2 Corinthians, I mean, if we, if we, if we, if we preach these, <laughs> these books and we go two verses at a time, we're going to be spending years and years on a couple of these books. I assure you next week, we're going to go through... Um, we're going to go through a lot of verses, so I'm going to cover a lot more ground next week. But this week is so rich, and I want to communicate so much of what God is teaching me that we're going to be in the first two verses of chapter 2. But let's start with First John. That which was from the beginning, that which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. And this is the message we have heard from Him and proclaim to you, that God is light And in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us 
from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar, and His word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, not only ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says that I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Amen. Well, we're in the epistle of John. So the author of this epistle is is the apostle John. The recipients are believers. Um, He's writing to to these believers and multiple times refers to them as my little children. His affections for these believers is the same as the affection as a father has for his children. I know that. I, I get to know that even more. I know that not only as a father, but as a grandfather. And that is what he is, that is in, in, in how he is writing to them as to little children. His purpose in, in this epistle is to encourage them, to encourage them in who they are in Christ, to, to affirm their position in Christ, to affirm the truths that they learn. He constantly is referring to that which you've heard from the beginning. Going back, he's also in doing that, he's refuting false teachers. Because false teachers always have something new, right? It's a lie. And it's always something new. And he encourages them to go back to what they have learned. And he encourages them in their walk with God and their walk with one another. He opens up this epistle, just strong, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard and which we have seen with their eyes. He opens up with strength with the object of our faith. The object of the Christian faith is the person of Jesus Christ. Our faith is not a blind faith. The Christian faith is true and rational, as Paul said when he spoke and defended himself before King Agrippa. Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. Both fully God and fully man. Jesus lived a sinless life and he took upon himself our sins so that, it might be com- so that he, he, God, might be completely satisfied the work of Christ on the cross. That's propitiation. Reconciling us to himself and that restored relationship that we have with both God and with one another. So the first week, when we looked at verses 1 through 5, here's what we concluded. We concluded that we cannot disconnect our fellowship with God and our fellowship with one another, all of which has been made possible by the atoning work of Jesus Christ. In fact, it's this very fellowship that we share together that is a testimony. It's evidence of our relationship with God. How we come together, how we work together as a body of Christ, our fellowship together is a testimony to the world of the work of Christ on the cross and who we are in Christ. We cannot proclaim to have fellowship with God. Hear me on this. I, we, we, we can't proclaim to have fellowship with God while living outside of fellowship 
with one another. It's not possible. Week two, we we were looking at verses um, five through uh, through ten. And um, John tackles the influence of the false teachers. They were claiming some type of sinlessness to be without sin. Um, all through this special knowledge, this, this Gnosticism or pre-Gnosticism that was kind of infiltrating the church. And in doing so, they were denying the atoning work of Christ on the cross. They were denying his physical resurrection. They denied the humanity of Christ, which was necessary for the atoning work for us in our place. That was the penalty sin. And so John deals with the subject of sin by first establishing the standard by which sin is defined. And the standard is God himself. John says in verse 5, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. God is all that is righteous and God is all that is true. All that corresponds with reality is based who God is. And it's defined by his person and his character. You live in a culture, I live in a culture that it wants to redefine reality. Am I not right? Look at it. They want to redefine reality. Is that a new lie? No. What did the enemy tell Adam and Eve? You can be just like God. You can define reality yourself. You don't have to to live in accordance with the reality of who God is. God is light. He defines what is true. He defines reality. The main point from that message, from that message from verses 5 through 10, was this. For one who walks in the light of God's Word, there's an ongoing fellowship and there's an ongoing cleansing, both of which are evidenced by the confession of sin. Because light exposes sin and has a a cleansing effect in our lives as we walk in the light of God's Word. We cannot walk in the light, that is, have true fellowship with God and not be impacted by it. We cannot say that we walk in fellowship with God and at the same time walk in darkness, as expressed really in how we treat one another. And confession of sin, this was a, this was a point we made um, the last time we looked. Confession of sin is a testimony to a life changed by the light of God's Word. We avoid that like the plague, confessing sin, and yet that's the very evidence of who we are in Christ and our walk with Him in His Word. Confession of sin is ongoing for one who walks in the light of God's word. Listen to Steve, what Steve Brown says. How many of you know Steve Brown, that deep vow, that old pastor? I, I, see, I see Dave Wolf shaking. So it's okay. It's this old generation. It's just a, we know Steve Brown. Listen to what Steve Brown says. Hear, hear, hear me on this, and I quote, Radical and pervasive depravity is what we all experience. Now, for you young people, we talk about words about depravity. We're talking about just being God-haters and self-lovers, okay? I'll start over with that. I, I inserted, here's the quote. Radical and pervasive depravity is what we all experience. We just don't want to admit it. And we don't admit it so much that we cause the world to think that what this thing is about 
is about being good. And it's not. End quote. It's not about our goodness. It's about the goodness of Christ, the righteousness of Christ, the sinlessness of Christ. This tells us about our depravity, tells us who we are apart from Christ. We're God-haters and self-lovers. And it all points to the person of Jesus Christ and what He has done for us in the atoning work on the cross. The last time we came and we were looking at uh, this passage, I defined several words, okay? So I'm going to just I'll quickly go through them and then we'll get to our passage. But light, we defined light as anything that's consistent with the person, character, and being of God. God is light. Truth. What is truth? John uses that word truth. What's truth? Truth is the, God's revelation of himself, both through his word and most perfectly through the person of Jesus Christ. Sanctify them in truth, Jesus prayed for his disciples in praying to his father. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth, Jesus said. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus himself is the expression of truth. Truth is God's revelation of himself. Walking in light, um, practicing truth, these are terms that John uses. It's just thinking and acting in a way that's in complete agreement with who God is and who is he revealed himself to be. Darkness. It's the, opposite. It's, the, it's the absence of light. It's the opposite. A lie. Now listen to this. A lie is, any, is, is anything that is in part or whole. Okay? Circle the in part in your mind. In part or in whole. Contrary to the truth. The enemy deceives us with half-truths. A lie is anything that either in part or in whole is opposed to the truth. Of God. And sin is to think or act in a way that agrees with the lie. It's acting in accordance with the lie. John says later in this epistle, in chapter 3, sin is lawlessness. It's an act of defiance towards the commands of God. And the commands of God that he gives us in his words are simply a revelation of himself, his character. So to act in a way that's contrary to the commands of God is to act in contrary to the character of God, is to defame God. And and a point I tried to make the last time we were looking at this passage was that sin is more than the sum of its consequences. We tend to think, I tend to think of sin in terms of its consequences. In terms of what it is in reality, it defames the person and character of God. We say a white lie like it's, We judge it by its consequences. Oh, it's no big deal. It defames God. That's what a lie does, no matter how white or dark it is in your mind. It defames God. It is spitting in God's face. That's what sin does. Oh, it has consequences. But we need to teach our children, and we need to learn to think in a way other than, oh, it's the, uh, the consequences of sin. It has consequences. But that's not what defines it. What defines it is its defiance against the person and character of God. You know, when our God is small in our mind, our sin is small. When sin is no big deal to you, that's because God is no big deal to you or me. 
But the closer we walk with God, the more time we spend in His Word, and we're going to see that in some patches that we're going to open up, the more we come to know God, the more we come to see ourselves in that radical depravity that Steve Brown is talking about, and the more we come to say, hey, there's no place to go but to the cross and what Christ has done for us. We talked about confession too. This is so important. It is so important to understand confession. We talk about in confession. To confess is to be in complete agreement with God. To be in complete agreement um, with the truth. It's not just an intellectual agreement. Okay? It's in the heart. It's to agree in the heart. Not just in the mind, but in the heart. And that's what moves us to change. So it goes from here to here, to our feet, to our hands. Changes us. It changes us. Confession changes. We looked at the we looked at a passage that our kids are learning. They're going to sing it. You're going to hear them sing it. First John 1 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I said we what it doesn't mean, what that verse doesn't mean is that we can't we we are unforgiven until we confess our sins. That's not what that means and yet we tend to think of we tend to think of it like that way. Just reading that reading that verse and um, kind of getting outside of some of the verb tenses that John is using, we begin, begin to think of it as conditional. But John, confession is ongoing. John, John uses the present tense of confession. It's ongoing. So as we're walking in the light of God's word, confession should come out of that. We should be confessing our sins. And then God is faithful. He is character and just. Who forgive? The translators, there's no word. There's no, the aorist tense of the Greek, there is no tense in English to match up with it. So they say to forgive, but it means something that just is. It is. So we, so we, so we just said, we said when we, if and when, if we confess our sins, that by God's character, because of who he is, he's faithful and just. Forgiveness and cleansing is our reality. It's who we are in Christ. We are forgiven. So just, we said, and here's an important concept, just in review, I'm going to end the review. I'm looking at the time. I've been told I only have 10 minutes to review. Justification is not based on, just in the same way that our justification is not based on our works, okay? And I think most of us say, yeah, we, yeah, we understand. Just as our justification is not based on our works, yet our works give evidence to that justification, and they can't be separated. So also, in the same way, forgiveness and cleansing are not dependent on confession. They're not dependent on confession. Yet, confession of sin is normal and ongoing part of the sanctifying process that gives evidence of our walk with God. Are, do you understand that? Do you understand that? Just as our judge, in the same way that our justification is not based on our works, but our works give evidence of that justification. So in the same way, our confession, our, our forgiveness is not based on confession, but our confession gives evidence of the forgiveness that we have in Christ because of who we are in Christ. It's who I am in Christ. So where there's walking in the light, there's confession of sin. Where there is no confession of sin, there's no walking in the light. And so John refutes these false teachers who are saying, eh, we're sinless, there's no sin. John says, no. If you're walking in the light of God's word, there's going to be confession of sin. I had a brother come to me this week to confess something. There was an offense I wasn't even aware of. 
And you know what my thought was? Ah, evidence. There's a man who's walking in God's Word. The Holy Spirit is working in his life. When, confess sin, when, when someone confesses something to us, or we confess sin, we shouldn't be going, oh, yeah, yeah, you really, I'm glad you're doing that. You should be. We, we, wow, that's the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of that person. And so now John says in chapter 2, verse 1, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He, that is the sinless Son of God, is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Sin is a reality in the life of a believer. Sin is a reality in our life. As long as we're housed in these mortal bodies, we will battle with the temptation of sin. And at times, we will yield to that temptation. But thanks be to God, because forgiveness and cleansing we have in Jesus Christ. Yet John is not writing these things. In all, this, in, in all that he's giving to these believers, he stops to say, I'm writing these things so that you may not sin. He's telling them they're forgiven, but I don't, but I, but I don't want you to use that as an excuse to sin. Where have we heard that before? Don't, don't, don't use that as an excuse to sin. Paul said that, right, in Romans. Paul, in, in Romans chapter 5, he makes this argument to his readers that God gave the law through Moses to reveal man's need for God's grace. That's why the law was given. It exposes our depravity. Therefore, Paul argues that whereby the law made sin, made man's sin increase, made it more manifest, okay? Before the law, before thou shalt not and thou shalt do this, before that, it wasn't obvious. But when God gave the law, then our sin was exposed. It made it more manifest. And Paul argues that when, when, when sin was made more manifest, God's grace was made more manifest. And so he said, where sin abound, grace abound all the more, right? right? McNaughton, where's McNaughton? McNaughton was just, telling, was just talking about that. And then Paul says in verse, he opens up chapter 6 in Romans. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Shall we just go ahead and sin all the more so that grace can abound all the more? Wrong, Paul says. By no means, Paul says. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him, that is with Christ, in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we've died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. Let 
Not sin, therefore reign in your mortal body, Paul goes on to say, to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruction, as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but you're under grace. What then? Paul asked the question again. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? By no means. So both the Apostle Paul and the Apostle John are saying, no, what God has done for us, who we are in Christ, is no excuse to sin. Paul would say from death to life, we've gone from death to life, from slavery to freedom. Sin has been crucified with Christ. John says from darkness to light. As we walk in the light, we experience fellowship and an ongoing cleansing of sin in our lives as we walk in the light of God's Word. John continues, But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. He, that is Christ, the propitiation for our sins. And not only, and not ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. John tells us that when we sin, we have an advocate with the Father. So here's some questions I want to answer in the brief time that I have. Okay? What is an advocate? I mean, this, if we're going to understand what John's communicating, we've got to ask ourselves, well, what's an advocate? There's, on your handout, there's just that question. There's no blanks to fill in. You can answer the question there. I'm going to, I'm going to help you with that. What's an advocate? How is Jesus uniquely qualified to be our advocate? Question number two. And of what does Jesus advocate? What's he advocating? We have an advocate. What's he advocating? Where does this advocacy take place? Where is this taking place? And here's the big question. Why do we need an advocate? What's the relationship between our sin and our advocate? Since my sins are forgiven, past tense, John says in, uh, just ahead in, in, in verse 12 of chapter 2, since my sins are forgiven, why do I need an advocate? Is Christ defended? Am I on trial? Is Christ defended me in court? Am I on trial every time I sin? Is he pleading my case before the judge every time I sin? What is an advocate? Well, the Greek word here is the same Greek word that's used um, uh, that John uses in his gospel for the Holy Spirit and for the work of the Holy Spirit as a helper and a comforter. But the advocate, the noun means, means this. It means one who is called to someone's aid. Right? Got me on that? One who is called to someone's aid. And then I saw another um, definition, one who advocates for another. Oh, well, you can't use the same word to, help, to, to define a word. But I, I like one who is called to someone's aid. And the English, you know, we use the word advocate. We think of it in the, in the English word that's used. And in our own culture, we think of it a champion, someone who champions a cause, right? That's what an advocate does, a champion, champions a cause, a cause. But by net de definitions, it's one who comes alongside. It's an intercessor. It's a representative. 
one who is there to do something that is to be declared by the advocate. Here John says that Christ is our advocate with the Father. And here with means before or face to face with the Father. Who is our advocate? Well, I guess we've already answered that question. And what's unique about this advocate? John identifies Jesus Christ as our advocate. And he says, and 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 he identifies Jesus as the righteous, the sinless Son of God. And then John goes on, not only is he just the sinless Son of God, but he is the propitiation for our sins. This advocate has completely satisfied the holy wrath of God against my sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21. Can you sing it, guys? You could sing that, couldn't you? 2 Corinthians 5. Second Corinthians 5.21, he, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. Only absolute righteousness can satisfy the justice and holiness of God. Anything less would require a violation of God's character, a violation of his justice. Jesus Christ is sinless, and he is, as John describes him, the righteous one. He alone is qualified to satisfy the penalty of my sin. He is the propitiation for my sin. And where does this advocacy take place? Where does this advocacy take place? John tells us with the Father. This advocacy takes place in the heavenly realm, face-to-face, before God the Father. Hear me on this. Our sin is not a private affair. There is something much grander at play. Throughout Scripture, we see that there exists a reality that goes beyond the material world. There exists a spiritual realm that includes the heavenly hosts, ones that are not visible to the human eye. And all of these heavenly hosts include both angels, both, both faithful and unfaithful, both fallen and not fallen angels. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 4.9, For I, that is Paul, think God has exhibited us apostles, last of all, as men condemned to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. And so the Bible in many passages, gives us a glimpse into the heavenly places. Turn with me in your Bibles. You have your Bibles with you? Turn to Isaiah chapter 6. Most of you are familiar with this. But let's look together at Isaiah chapter 6. Pretty easy to find. Um, Comes right after the poetry section. Major prophet, Isaiah chapter 6. Now, as I read this, I want you to think about, I want you, I'll make a couple observations to you. Isaiah is a prophet. This is the mouthpiece, hear me, the mouthpiece of God speaking. He, he, he speaks to the people. He proclaims the word of God to the people of God. He also proclaims condemnation when they sin. Woe is you, woe is you. The prophet proclaims both blessing and curse. And how, how they respond to the commands of God. So we're going to read how 
The very mouthpiece of God reacts when he stands in the presence of, of God. Uh, Isaiah chapter 6, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, here's the prophet. Here's what Isaiah says when he comes before the throne of God. Woe is me. Woe is me. For I lost. I'm ruined. I'm undone. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people with unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. And your sins atone for. What does light do? It reveals sin. Right? What does Isaiah do when he comes and stands before the very throne of God? Before God who is light. He proclaims a woe upon himself. Radical depravity. Woe is me. He stands in the very presence of God. And what happens? It's a confession. Woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips. There's the confession. And what is that confession followed by? There's a cleansing. And what part does Isaiah play in that cleansing? Nothing. Does someone say nothing? Nothing. He is passive in the process. He is cleansed, not by any work of his own. Go to Job. Go to Job. Go back. Go, go, go to the left. Go back and the, go, go to the first book of poetry. Go back to Job chapter 1. Job chapter 1. Again, a passage that many of us are familiar with. Job, Job chapter 1. We're going to pick up in 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? And there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, "Ah, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him in his house And all that he has on every side, you bless the works of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But, Satan says, stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he'll curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. 
What do we learn from this passage? Our enemy, our adversary, our accuser, Satan, has permission to come before the presence of God. He has access to the throne room of God. And here Satan accuses Job of having a, self, a self-serving righteousness, insisting that Job would curse God if God would not protect him and bless him. A quid pro quo. Tit for tat. Scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. That's the relationship Satan says that Job has with you, God. And it works well for, for him. Well, you know the rest of the story. Job, if you read this, Job undergoes just unimaginable suffering. Unimaginable suffering. But God sustains him. Turn back to, turn to Job. Go to Job 40 really quick. Just, just go to Job, four, I'm sorry, 42. Go to Job 42. So there's, there's all of these chapters the suffering of Job, his, his the counselors that come to him and say, Job, you know, repent of your sin. And, and, and they, they try to counsel him. Job questions God. And, 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 and then God answers him. Then God answers Job. But listen at the very end. Listen in Job 42, verse 5. Listen to what Job says. I hope, and I hope you look it up and see it. This is what Job... I have heard of you by hearing of the year, but now my eyes see you. What's his response? Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. This is what happens when we walk in the light of God's word. It convicts us of sin. And that's what it should do. It's evidence. A brother or sister who is confessing sin is evidence that they're walking in the light. Confession of sin. Look at, look at Revelation uh, 12. I know we're skipping. I just, and I go back to these this week. Go back to these. Here, the, not only, I, I just want to just again emphasize what God is allowing Satan to do. Revelation 12. Revelation chapter 12. Last book of the Bible. Revelation 12. Verse 7 through 11. Now war rose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated. This is, that is the dragon. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent, who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. Day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their life even unto death. There is a heavenly audience, and we have an accuser. There is an accuser. All right. One last one. I want you to go back to the Old Testament. 
One, uh, this is the last time I'm going to ask you to turn, but this is important. Zechariah, the prophet Zechariah. Okay, right before Malachi. Second, uh, if you're going backwards, if from the New Testament, second book back. So that's how I sometimes find things. Zechariah, Zechariah. Listen to this. So this this kind of help brings it all together, right? We have an accuser. We, there is an audience. Um, there is there is an advocate. Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 3. And let me just, we don't have time to go into this, but let me just give you the characters who are at play here. There is a narrating angel in this vision. So Zechariah, in in the book of Zechariah, there's eight visions that Zechariah has. This is one of those visions. There is a narrating angel, and he says, you know, and he showed me. This is the narrating angel that's kind of walking Zechariah through through this vision. There is Joshua. Now, for our young people, this is not the Joshua who um, leads the people into um, into the promised land. This is just Joshua the high priest. The time of this is after the 70, 70 years of um, captivity, um, and, and the people of God are coming back into their land. And so Joshua is the high priest. And the angel of the Lord is the pre-incarnate Christ. The angel of the Lord. Usually when we see angel of the Lord, most theologians would say that's the pre-incarnate Christ. He speaks with the authority of God. gives commands. And then there's Satan, the accuser. Now, let me say, before I read this passage, let me say one thing, one thing about the priest. We already talked about Isaiah, the prophet, right? The, the mouthpiece of God. Let me say something about the high priest. So the high priest was, a, was the one who represented the people before God, right? The prophet represented God before the people. The high priest is he who represents the people before God. And he was allowed only once a year to go into the very holy of holies, to offer an atonement for the sins of the people. And he was, and, we, and, and this is going to come up when we talk about garments, how the high priest was dressed down to his undergarments was specified in the Old Testament. In fact, if you go to mark this, Exodus 28, there are 43 verses that talk about exactly how he was to be dressed to walk into the Holy of Holies down to his undergarments, representing the people, holy. So now read with me, Zechariah chapter 3, this vision that he, said, that he has. Then he, and this is this, this, this angel, an angel, showed me Joshua the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this, that is Jerusalem, a brand brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed in filthy garments. Filthy garments. And the angel said to those, and this is the angel of the Lord, said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him, that is to Joshua, he said, the angel of the Lord, Behold, I have taken away your iniquity from you and clothed you with pure garments. We see the same kind of thing with Joshua, the high priest that we saw with Isaiah. Right? What part did, jo- did this high priest play in getting new clean clothes. None. He played none. How were his clothing 
described as filthy rags. That's, 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 that's how we're described. Jeremiah, our, our, our righteousness is like filthy rags before God. But God is the one who takes our filthy rags and gives us the righteousness of His Son, Jesus Christ. So what does our advocate do? What does he advocate? What is he advocating? Is the question that comes to mind. Hear me on this. As our advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous, sinless Son of God, declares the excellence, the supremacy, and the complete satisfaction of His, His atoning work on the cross. This is not a man-centered advocacy. This is a Christ-centered advocacy. Some commentators use the word pleading before the Father. I do not like that choice of words. We are not in court before God. It's not a question of how does God see us. We're being accused Christ is our advocate. And what is he advocating? His work. His work on the Christ cross. He's not pleading our case before God the Father. It's done. It is all done. There is therefore no condemnation. None. For those who are in Christ Jesus. Yet when the bully of heaven comes to accuse us before God, Jesus Christ our advocate declares what? The sufficiency of His atoning work on the cross. Satan can accuse us all he wants. And he does. We saw it in Revelation. Day and night. Right? But Satan's accusations are empty. Empty. Satan might as well be accusing Jesus Christ himself of sin because we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. For Satan to accuse us before God the Father is to deny the complete satisfaction of God's justice by the work of Christ on the cross. John says this. We'll see this in verse 12 of chapter 2. I'm writing these things to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven Perfect tense. It's done. It's completed. Are forgiven for His name's sake. It's all about the person of Christ. Guess what that means? God uses Satan for His own glory. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? Every time that Satan accuses God's children... Every time that Satan accuses God's children, he, Satan, puts on display the triumph of Christ over sin and death. That just wows me. Paul says in Colossians, you were dead in your trespasses and sin, in the uncircumcision of your flesh, but God, that is the Father, but He, God the Father, made you alive together with Him, that is the God the Son, having forgiven us all our transgressions and having canceled out the certificate the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us. It's amazing. Even when we sin, here's the main point of the message. If you hear nothing else, hear this. Even when we sin, 
Christ is what? Glorified. Christ is glorified. Isn't that amazing? We still sin, right? We still sin. We have an accuser. We have an accuser. But we have an advocate. And then before the audience of all creation, Jesus Christ advocates his work on the cross. Our life is more significant than the routine of daily life. We're part of a grand narrative, a redemptive story for all creation to witness, one that magnifies the person of Jesus Christ. So let me ask you this, just some application questions. How are you doing in your battle with sin? How are you doing in your battle with sin? Do we, do I, do I recognize sin in my life? I should be. If I'm reading God's Word, that should become evident as I look at God's Word and light. I'm looking at God's truth. How do I respond when the light of God's Word exposes my sin? How do I respond? Do I rationalize it? Or do I confess it? How do I respond? And how do I respond when the, when the enemy accuses me? You hear that voice. You're not good enough. You're just a sinner. God couldn't possibly forgive you of that. How do you respond when Satan accuses you, when Satan accuses me of yielding to temptation? I run back to the foot of the cross. I confess my sin in my mind and in my heart. I confess that sin. And what do I do? I declare the excellencies of him who died on the cross for me. A reality does not give me a license to sin, but a reality that causes me to love Jesus Christ more than I love my own sin. We have an advocate in the person of Jesus Christ. And John says, He is is the satisfaction, the complete satisfaction of our sins, not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. Christ's death on the cross is certainly sufficient for all of mankind, but it is most assuredly effectual for those who by faith, trusting in the person of Jesus Christ, all people who trust in Him have that work done in their life. John's not referring to a universal salvation He's referring to a salvation that is universal. It is extended to all men from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And so, they sang a new song. Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. For you were slain, and you have purchased for God with your blood from every, men from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. John says, I am writing you children. I am writing these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is a propitiation for our sins, and not only ours, but for the sins of the whole world. Let me close with just just three statements. I'm I'm way out of time. I apologize for this. I close with three important truths, okay? Let me give these to you. We are part of a grand narrative that's much bigger than ourselves. A narrative that has one purpose. I hope I've made this clear one purpose, and that is to bring glory to Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ is just that. It's the gospel of Jesus 
Christ. It is centered around the person of Christ. We, our sins have been forgiven, John says, for his namesake. Two, truth number two. We have a living and eternal hope. Because Christ has completely satisfied, that is propitiation, because he has completely satisfied the justice of God, we stand before God clothed in the righteousness of Christ. For one who has not been born of God, there is a terrifying judgment that is coming. Read about it in the book of Revelation. And only eternal death will satisfy the justice of God. If you're trusting in anything, if you're here and you're trusting anything other than the person of Jesus Christ, and your plan, and your plan of defense is your relative goodness, it's not going to work. God is holy. God is just. Nothing but sinless perfection will satisfy his holy wrath against sin. And only Jesus Christ can do that and does that. On our behalf. For those of us who are born of God, death has been defeated. There's no fear in death. We have a hope of a resurrection to eternal life. Our standing before God is who we are in Christ. We're clothed by no merit of our own in the righteousness of Christ. We have a living and eternal hope. And three, Christ's substitutionary and atoning death on the cross has completely exhausted Satan's power of accusation. Amen? Amen. Don't let him accuse you. Christ stands there when Satan accuses, saying, no, it's done. It's finished. I have taken those sins to the cross. They are paid for completely. There is therefore now no con. Satan still accuses us, but to no avail. Satan's accusations against God's elect have no merit. In fact, Satan's accusations only serve to magnify the person of Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? All Satan can do is accuse us. That's his nature. And yet every time he does it, Christ is glorified. Even when we sin, Christ is glorified. What shall we say then to these things, Paul says in Romans? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies Who is the one who condemns? Where is he? Who? Who? Jesus Christ is he who died. Yes, rather, one who was raised and who is at the right hand of God and who intercedes for us, our advocate. We have an advocate in the person of Jesus Christ. Amen.